Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. Well, here we are. Uh, It's four days after Christmas. The gifts that were sitting under the tree are now old news, and uh, if you have kids or grandkids, they're maybe already starting to walk around saying, I'm bored, I have nothing to play with, right? The childlike anticipation of Christmas, this idea of twas the night before Christmas, when is Christmas finally going to get here? We've got our, our countdown calendars that often gives way to a sense of letdown or anticlimax after Christmas. And the sermon series that we've been in this month uh, has focused on the first Christmas, the, the light of Christ breaking in to the spiritual darkness, the longed-for Messiah finally appearing, God becoming flesh, uh, the Savior finally being born. So there's been that sense of anticipation and now excitement that, it, that it's here. Uh, but if, if we're not careful, uh, spiritually, we can experience the same thing that sometimes kids experience after Christmas, that, that anticlimax of, oh, now what? Uh, if we only look back on what God did that first Christmas, and then we look at our present reality Sometimes it's, it's tempting to wonder, what difference does it all really make? Christ has come, but now here we are centuries later, and we still live in, the, in this fallen, broken world. So Jesus came, but, but now what? What does it really matter? The, the celebration of Christ's first coming has to be tied to the anticipation of his second coming. Uh, Each year that we celebrate Christmas, we must rejoice at what Christ has done. That should be the focus. It's right to do that. But we also ought to be stirred up with a longing for him to, to return and to finish what he started. Christmas is kind of that first taste of what God's doing for his people. And so when we get that first taste, we should say, okay, I'm ready for the full meal. I want, I want the real final thing to come. And so today we're going to look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 to 27. We're going to see what, what's going to happen. We're going to see when, what's going to happen when Jesus returns to finish what he started at Christmas. So we're going to see in Revelation 21 a description of the new Jerusalem, which is heaven. So when when Jesus comes back, he's going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And and on that new heaven and new earth will be the city of Jerusalem, where, where God will be with his people. And so in this passage, we have a description of that. And we see the way that it's described is it shows... John shows us three things that will not be in the New Jerusalem, three things that will not be in heaven. So let's look at those three things. Let's read Revelation 21, 22 through 27 together. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we see here that there's three things that won't be in heaven. No temple, no sun or moon, and no impurity. So let's look at those in turn. Number one, in heaven there will be no temple. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The greatest gift that God can give is himself. To be in God's presence is the best good thing. There is nothing better for people than to see God and to be with him. Uh, Our greatest need and our highest joy is to just be in God's presence. It's the best thing for us. Uh, if, if you've been listening to Christmas music, uh, you've, you've undoubtedly heard the song by Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You. Uh, my wife and I have been fighting about that song all Christmas. Uh, just a little side note, I, I read an article, uh, that song's 25 years old, and it is the number one song in America right now. Uh, not just the number one Christmas song, but like the number one song, Billboard Top 100. And Mariah Carey has made $60 million with that song uh, in the last 25 years, which is ridiculous because it's a terrible song. It's really bad. And that's what my wife and I have been fighting about. She loves it. I think it's terrible. But that, that idea, all I want for Christmas is you, should be the heart cry of every Christian. Right? As Christians, we should say, okay, God, all I want is you. Every day, not just Christmas, all I, all I want, all I need is just to be with you, to be in your presence. And one of the central themes of the Bible is how do we, be, how do we get into God's presence? How can sinful, broken people like us be with God? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, God created humans and, and created the garden And the Garden of Eden was the place where God walked with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were in God's presence, and they had perfect joy, perfect peace. Everything they ever wanted was right there for them as they were with God. And and of course, they ruined it. They took the fruit. They rebelled against God. They entered into sin. And what did God do? He cast them out of the garden. Ever since Genesis 3, we have been outside of God's presence trying to figure out how do we get back into God's presence. And of course, the answer is we can't get back into God's presence, and so God makes a way for us to get into his presence. In the Old Testament, he establishes a a system, a sacrificial system, the ceremonial laws, to, to make it possible for his people, the Israelites, to get into his presence. In Exodus, he establishes the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, right? It's called the tent of meeting because it's where God meets with his people. 
Uh, ladies, the study that's coming up here in January, Wilderness Wanderings, is a study walking through the book of Exodus. And so in that study, in Exodus, you're going to see how God created a means for his people to be in his presence in the tabernacle, right? And then the tabernacle gives way to the temple, which is more of a permanent structure. But if you know anything about that, ta that tabernacle or temple system, you know that it was a very, there were a lot of standards, a lot of, a lot of rules. You, you couldn't just march into the temple, right? It was a very mediated experience. Just think of the temple structure. You had the outer courts, and those, the outer courts, that was the line that Gentiles could not cross. So if you were not a Jew, you couldn't come into the outer courts. And then the outer courts was where Jews could, could come. But that, that outer courts, that was as far as women could go. And that was as far as the non-Levitical uh, Jews could go. In the temple itself, you had two rooms. You have the holy place, and the holy place is where the priests could go. The priests would go there to offer sacrifices, uh, offer up offerings, things like that, do their ceremonial duties. But then within that, you had the holy of holies, the most holy place, and that was uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the Ark represents God's throne on earth. And so that was separated with a curtain, and only one man, the high priest, could go into that room, and only one time per year. And he had, to he had to cleanse himself ceremonially, he had to wear the right garments, he had to offer up multiple sacrifices, he had to purify himself and the people before he could go into that holy place, the most holy place. And so... It was a, it was, there was a lot of bars that you had to jump. And it, what God was doing is God was showing us, you can't just march into my presence because you're sinful. You are polluted. And if you come into my presence, you'll be consumed like if you were to try to fly into the sun. And so he makes a way for us to get into his presence, but it's, it's a shadow it's not the full substance. It's not what we are really longing for. So the Old Testament leaves you saying, okay, is there another way? Is there a better way into God's presence? And then Christmas happens. And, and in Christmas, we see in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? And that, that phrase, dwelt among us, you could translate it as pitched his tent among us. Tabernacled among us. When, when Jesus became a human, when God the Son became a human, he made, a, he made his dwelling among us. He pitched his tent among us. And so in Jesus, we now have access to God. That's why John, Jesus says in John chapter 2 to the, to the religious leaders, if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And the, the religious leaders are confused. They say, it, it took us 46 years to build this temple. What are you talking about? And Jesus is saying, the temple doesn't matter anymore. The temple is no longer the place that you go to meet God. You now come to me to meet God. I am God in the flesh. Which is why in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. So we desperately need God's presence. We can't get there on our own because we are sinful and broken. And so God sends Jesus to give us an opportunity to be in his presence. And the distinguishing characteristic of the new heavens and the new earth is that there is no temple. The whole place is a temple. God is among his people. They are able to walk freely with him. There's no more mediation, no more sacrifices, no more barriers. When, when Jesus died on the cross, you know what happened? The curtain of the temple was torn in two, so the, the door into the most holy place was ripped open. God signaling, hey, you can come into my presence now through Jesus Christ. But we, we only see a little bit of that now. Right? We don't experience a face-to-face -face relationship with God. God has sent his spirit to live in our hearts. And so there's a sense in which we as the church are God's temple now. But we look forward to the day when we will realize that, when we will experience that in a much fuller way, a more complete way. Heaven is the place where God walks with his people, where everywhere you go, there's God, and you're with him in, in perfect relationship. You can see him face to face again. And that free access to God in heaven does not just happen. It's not as if uh, God says, okay, I used to require sacrifices I used to require a level of purity to come into my presence, but now I'm just going to let all that slide and just anybody that wants to come can come. A sacrifice was needed to get into God's presence, right? And we see that in, in verse 22. The, the, there's no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In the Old Testament, a sacrifice was needed, and in the new heavens and new earth, a sacrifice is needed, and it's Jesus Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the one that gave his life, that bled so that we might live. So Jesus has opened the door into God's presence. And so only those who are trusting in Jesus, only those who have been washed by the blood of the lamb, only those who have put on the garments of righteousness that Jesus offers will experience heaven. If you do not put your trust in Christ, there is no heaven for you. You will not be in God's presence. You will be cast outside of God's presence forever. But through the blood of Jesus, you get to enter in. We get to live in the temple with Jesus forever. So that's the first distinguishing characteristic of heaven. No temple, because the whole place is where God's presence is. The second uh, characteristic is that the, the, the new city, this new Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon. Verses 23 through 26. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." Not only will there be no temple, there will be no sun or moon when Jesus ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And this passage is not meant to be an exposition on the astronomical characteristics of heaven. 
right? We're not, we're not meant to take this passage literally. I don't know what the astronomical characteristics of heaven will be like, but John's not interested in answering that question here. This is symbolic. The picture that is painted here is that in the new heavens and new earth, God's people will have perfect spiritual light all the time. We will see perfectly. So in our ruined state as sinners, we are like blind people groping about in the darkness. We are spiritually blind. We can't see anything. Apart from God's intervening help, we were fumbling around trying to figure out where we're going, and we have no way of knowing what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. Light breaking through the darkness is one of the main themes of Christmas. Jesus' first coming was meant to address this spiritual darkness. We see that in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then again, in uh, John chapter 1, when John's describing the first coming, he says, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So spiritually speaking, humans were walking around in the darkness, couldn't see, couldn't find our way, and then day broke. Jesus came. Jesus turned on the lights. Through faith in Christ, we become spiritually alive and our eyes are open to see the world as it actually is. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, right back in Genesis chapter 1, the same God who made light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes our spiritual son that gives light to everything. But in this world, our vision is dimmed. We can see, but not always clearly. There is still much darkness. Scripture says we see as in a mirror dimly. I've been, I've been thinking about uh, when Jesus was born and the, the star that shone, right? Last week, Pastor Doug looked at the passage of the wise men and they saw the star rise and so they, they came to Jesus. And I think it's, it's interesting that it was a star, right? A star gives off light, but it doesn't give off a lot of light, right? So at Jesus' first coming, there was brightness. There was this light that we could look to, but a lot of people missed it. Right? The wise men saw the star and they came running, but Herod and, and others saw the star and they, didn't, they weren't interested. Right? So many people are still groping about in the darkness now. And even those of us who have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, even those of us who, whose eyes have been opened, we still don't see everything. We still are often confused. We still often take the wrong steps. When Christ returns, that will no longer be the case. Jesus will give us perfect spiritual light. 
Hebrews 1, 3, uh, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So it will be full sunshine in heaven all the time. Uh, and not only, not only will God's people see Jesus, see the light, but the nations will become God's people. Verse 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And then down in verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Last week we, we saw that Christmas is not just for the ethnic Jews, it's for everyone, right? The wise men were pagans from the east, but when they saw Jesus, they, they came to him and they, they turned their lives over to him as, as their king. And that is God's plan, is to save the nations, right? This is a global gospel. When, when Christ returns, the gospel will have spread to every corner of the earth and people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be people from all over the world that are bowing down to King Jesus, that are running to Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem, God's city, and bowing down in worship to the king. Think of uh, how this worked back in in Jesus' time. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, there was a time when Jerusalem was this mighty city, when David and Solomon were king. People would come to Jerusalem to pay tribute to these powerful kings. But then Jerusalem fell into, into sin and, and rebellion, and, and God, God destroyed Jerusalem, right? And then by the time Jesus came, the Romans were in power, and Rome was the city where the king was, and people would go to Rome to offer tribute, and Jerusalem was nothing. And John's saying there's a day coming when Jerusalem will be something again. Right? We will be members of Jerusalem. We will, we, our citizenship will be in the new Jerusalem, and, and people will come to Jerusalem to offer their tribute. And the sun will shine there. Right? Uh, verse 25, its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So a city would have a uh, wall around it for defense, and the gate would be open so people could come and go. But if the city was attacked, you would shut the gates. The New Jerusalem will never be attacked. They will never need to shut the gate for safety. The, the city will always be in perfect security. And there will be no night there. So at night they would shut the gates so that thieves wouldn't break into the city. But in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no thieves. There will be no insecurity. There will be no reason to shut the gates at any time because we will perfectly see all the time. It's always bright, always secure in heaven. The way that we see spiritually is through God's word. Psalm 119, you remember, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So there's a day that's coming when we will see perfectly spiritually, but even now, God means for you to see. God means for your eyes to be opened and for you to see more clearly with greater brightness. And the way that he means for you to do that is to soak in this word, 
to get to know him through his word, to understand scripture. So we're a couple days away from the new year and some of you are resolution people and you're thinking, okay, what, what's my new year's resolution? How about more time in the word in 2020? Let's have 2020 be the year that we spend time in God's word so that we can see to the degree that you do not know God's word and do not follow God's word, you are in darkness. And likewise, to the degree that you know God's word and follow it, you are walking in the light. So don't grope about in the dark anymore. Get into the word and see with spiritual eyes. So there will be no sun or moon because we'll see perfectly in heaven. And then finally, there will be no impurity in heaven. Verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I think this is an important passage that often gets overlooked, an important aspect of heaven. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth will be perfect. God himself will be there and he will give pure spiritual light the environment will be perfect. But if we are not changed, none of it matters. If the environment is pure, but we are polluted, then heaven will not be heaven. I will ruin it, or you will ruin it, or someone else will ruin it. Just like Adam and Eve ruined the garden. There was nothing wrong with the Garden of Eden. The problem was in, was in Adam and Eve's heart, right? They rebelled against God and they ruined the perfect peace of Eden and so God cast them out. And in the same way, if God makes a new heaven and a new earth, if he makes the Garden of Eden 2.0, but we are still broken, nothing's going to change. But God will not only purify the environment, he will also purify his people to make them fit for that environment, to make them appropriate for that environment. Think about the whole scope of, of human history. Uh, it can, if, you think, if you study history, it can be discouraging because we fall into the same errors over and over, right? The, the old saying is those who don't know the past are doomed to repeat it. Uh, even if you know the past, you're doomed to repeat it, right? Nations rise and fall. Wars are fought. Old errors are repeated. I was thinking about those who lived through World War I. How disheartening must it have been to live through World War I and then a few decades later live through World War II. How many people literally went crazy, lost their mental health because of World War II? Because they, I, I can't do this again. I've already experienced the agony of World War and now we're doing it again? It's discouraging to think We've already done this, right? The, the World War I was the war to end all wars until World War II happened. And if, if the Lord tarries and, and the, 
history continues, there's going to be a World War III someday. Eventually, we'll do it again. That's how human history works, and it's discouraging. Uh, I'm a Star Wars fan, and so I, I, I recently watched the, the, most, the new Star Wars movie, Rise of Skywalker, right? So it's the end of the, the new trilogy that they've been releasing the last few years. Uh, and I, I was kind of discouraged by this new trilogy, because if you think about it, the original Star Wars movies that were released, you know, late 70s, early 80s, uh, the, the third one, The Return of the Jedi, the good guys win, and the bad guys lose, and the Emperor is killed, and the Death Star is destroyed, and sorry, spoiler alert, but it's a pretty old movie, so if you haven't seen it now. I had someone come up to me and say, we're showing our kids those movies right now, and you just ruined them. But the good guys win in the original trilogy, right? The bad guys are done, and they, the good guys ride off into the sunset happily ever after, Right? And then now they roll out this new trilogy and we're right back in the mix. Right? The, the dead bad guys don't stay dead. The darkness returns. They build a bigger, better Death Star. It's just kind of a discouraging movie. It's like, we already fought these battles. What's the point of all of this? And that's how human history works. Right? right now the world is broken, people are broken, and we ourselves are broken. Sometimes good wins, Sometimes evil wins. Sometimes we walk in obedience. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes the church displays God's glory. Sometimes the church obscures God's glory. It's disheartening. The day is coming when all of that will end. God, God's people will not ruin heaven. He will transform them so that they are ready for it. Jeremiah 31 talks about this transformation. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So every person in heaven will know the Lord and be changed by the Lord. First John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will be fundamentally transformed. That heart of stone will be replaced with a heart of flesh. There will be total victory, total redemption. Right now, you and I are in the process of sanctification. The old man is passing away. The new man is coming. God is working in our hearts to change us. Right? Romans 7, Paul talks about this tension. He says, uh, I know the good that I want to do, but every time I try to do good, evil lies close at hand. There's this war waging within us. And he, he concludes by saying, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? As Christians, we feel that. Oh God, I want to serve you, but so often I fail. I'm still struggling with sin. But that sanctification will give way to glorification. God will finish the good work that he began in you. You will be finally and fully transformed so there is no sin left in you and no desire to sin and no ability to sin. You will be perfectly complete made into the image of Jesus. So you won't ruin heaven. 
and no one else will ruin it either. You will live there forever in perfect peace. And who gets to do that? Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who writes names in the Lamb's book of life? The Lamb does. Heaven is not full of people who are good enough, but people who God makes good. God's not waiting to see who's good and then he'll write their name in the book. Before the foundation of the world, our name was written in the book, and now Jesus is finishing that work. And so there's security there. Jesus will keep you. Jesus will cause you to endure. And then when you get to heaven, he'll complete that transformation. So as we, as we think about Christmas, as we look back on what Christ has done, we see that victory that he accomplished many years ago, but we also look forward to what he will accomplish. We, we started the service with uh, the song, When I, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Uh, some of you know the story behind that. It was written by uh, the famous poet Hen, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. So He wrote the poem during the Civil War. Uh, so during the Civil War, uh, not only is the country falling apart, the, the nation is tearing itself apart, but he personally was experiencing loss and suffering. A few years before, he had lost his wife in a house fire, and he himself had been badly burned. And then his oldest son joined the military, fought in the, in the Civil War, and a few weeks before Christmas, he was uh, shot and nearly killed. He was almost paralyzed. He ended up surviving, but his recovery took months. And so Christmas Day, Longfellow hears the Christmas bells, and he thinks, okay, it's Christmas, here's the Christmas carols that I've heard my whole life, and, and the, the, the scripture passage, peace on earth, goodwill to men, and he thinks, there's no peace on earth. Where's the goodwill to men, right? He's, he's hearing the church bells ring, but he's also hearing the cannons fire, and he's thinking, the darkness is too deep. But then he hears the bells again and he says, no, God will prevail. The darkness will not remain. Jesus has come and he will come again and he will make all things new. There will be no more death, no more sickness, no more wickedness. And so as Christians, we need to live there with Longfellow. When we hear the Christmas bells, we look around and we see the brokenness. We see what's still wrong but we hear those bells and we say, God's coming back and he's going to make all things new. And so we look forward in hope. And so Christmas is the guarantee of that hope and then heaven is the realization of that hope. So let's pray. Father, we live in between. We look back and we see that you have secured the victory. You have already sent the Savior. Jesus Christ has already come and he has already conquered sin and death. And we live in that reality. We live in that victory as Christians. We have eternal life already through Jesus, but we are longing for you to come back. We are longing for you to make all things new. We are longing for you to deliver us from this body of death. Lord, I pray that you would help us to endure, help us to look forward with hope and to walk in obedience until you come back. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.